1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Let me use a word I bet you've heard a lot of times, VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. It is so popular today. I think everybody seems to start everything with throwing VUCA in as if the label was somehow adequate to actually equip us to live and let alone thrive in times that are full of change and complexity. Well, needless to say, I don't think that's the case, just for the record. But today is going to be another step in helping you know what to do. I want to talk about what trends are really worth paying attention to. I want to talk about how you can know what risks are worth paying attention to. And more importantly, how do you spot the next trend before it's on top of you? So my guest today is Jonathan Brill, perhaps uniquely suited to talk about this topic. He's a former global futurist and long-term strategy strategy director at HP Hewlett-Packard. And he is now helping businesses and Hollywood leaders envision and profit from radical change. Importantly for us, his new book, Rogue Waves, shares the decision-making and innovation tools that he's helped clients use through crises and that have generated over 350 successful products. Needless to say, he's worked with some fairly large companies like Verizon, J.P. Morgan Chase, PepsiCo, Samsung, the U.S. government, MIT Media Lab, Microsoft, that's just to name a few. And Inc. called Jonathan, quote, a Silicon Valley legend. How good is that one for my goodness sakes? All right, Jonathan's a board advisor at Frost & Sullivan, which is a global intelligence service, and he's future in residence at Territory Studio, the visionaries behind the sci-fi tech in Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One, in Ghost in the Shell, and in Blade Runner 2049. Um, Bill has trained thousands of executives on innovation strategy and so forth. He's a thought leader, speaker, and contributor to TED, Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Psych Today, just to get through all of them. Jonathan, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Wanda. You make me sound uh, like a genius. <laughs> well,
1: aren't you, at least in this topic? Can't we just claim that you're a genius and move uh, we on can, here? We
2: can't. We can for the next hour.
1: Okay. Perfect. That's all we ask for. Great. I know it's really strange having somebody else read your bio a bit. It's just always an un- unusual experience. Okay. I always like to start with the same question. Why does this topic matter to you? Why do you care? What's the problem you think needs solving? Um,
2: I had an insight a number of years ago, which was I spent 25 years doing innovation work and uh, all of a sudden i had to be when i started at hp i had to deal with these risk people and and i realized like these people who who i avoided uh, like the plague they actually had really powerful tools for identifying the places where opportunity could happen where innovation could happen and that we needed to better link this this relationship between risk, between threat and opportunity so that we can find the biggest, the best opportunities for companies moving forward and increase our resilience moving forward. And it turns out that companies that link resilience and growth effectively, they tend to perform better in downturns and they tend to maintain that growth in the upturn. And so if we believe that we're moving into a more volatile time or at least a faster moving time, We know that there will be more disruption and this becomes not uh, an alternative to other strategies for growth, but the key strategy for growth.
1: So linking opportunity with threat, I think is the way you say it. Okay. All right.
2: I think we, I think we misunderstand the nature of risk, right? When I started writing my book, Rogue Waves, you know, I talked to my editors and they'd say risk is about threat. Risk is a measure of change over time. It's a measure of volatility. The reality is in 2020, you know, the GDP uh, gross domestic product uh, shrank about three and a half percent. And yet uh, the number of billionaires on the planet increased 13 percent. How is that possible? Unless in that disruption, some people know how to take leverage. Okay. And so I think as we move forward, if we believe that we're moving into this VUCA world that you suggest, uh, that you know, we need to figure out how we link opportunity and volatility as opposed to trying to simply mitigate it and avoid it.
1: So this isn't so much about controlling the risk as it is understanding the risk, trying to figure out what the opportunity is in the risk, preparing for the risk, and taking advantage of it in some ways. Is that a fair summary?
2: Yeah, that That's correct. You know, I think okay. that we're moving into a world of much larger waves of disruption, what I call rogue waves. Okay, rogue waves all right practice big wave surfing right we need to figure out how we're going to take advantage of these things and when uh when we get capsized right we need to figure out how to flip our kayaks faster than the competition because in, in a world of volatility you know uh having more room to run while everyone else is trying to bail out their boat an equally good strategy for growth great as trying to surf the wave
1: okay all right. I love the metaphor behind roadways, but I'm going to put that on a pause for just a moment yeah. because back to this whole thing, you talk about, going, and you gave me this quote, you said, we should not be focusing on getting the uh, having a goal that's getting from A to B, which is what most of us talk about in terms of business, that instead we should be talking about outcomes from A to Z. All right. So first off, what do you mean by that statement? And why do you say that?
2: So I, I, I'm sure you've been involved in strategic planning, right? It, it, and whenever we do our, our three-year plans or our one-year plans, well, like we're going to do 6% better or worse next year. But what we saw in 2020 was much more indicative of what actually happens when you see disruption, which is that you know AMC had a very good management team going into 2020, the theater company. Uh, so did Zoom. AMC didn't think that they were going to, near bankruptcy, have to take on a billion dollars and maybe still go bankrupt. And, and Zoom certainly didn't think they were going to do 26 times growth. Uh, so you can walk into these moments and you can have an AMC year or a Zoom year in any year. And so the question becomes, how do you prepare for that range of possibility? How do you increase your optionality in your potential, no matter what happens?
1: Okay. So it's not getting stuck Of We're A, we're going to be. we got the plan to get from A to B, We're just execute, increment, move steadily, change. It's understanding that we need to prepare for a range of things that could happen, take advantage when we can, try not to kill ourselves when we get capsized and keep moving. Okay. All right. I get your point. All right. So let's talk about disruptive forces, what you call rogue waves. All right. So what makes a force disruptive or a rogue?
2: So, so when we take a look at the world of things that are happening right now, we did about fifteen million dollars of research at HP to understand what we can and can't know about the next decade, and there are ten uh, disruptive waves of change uh, that that are occurring. They're, they're, I kind of break them down into social, economic, and technology trends because, like, keeping ten in your head at any time. Is, is, is a challenge. And the issue isn't any one of these. Like if you, if you read them, they're headlines in the newspaper, right? Changing demographics, uh, uh, the rise of Asia, uh, the, 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 the uh, developing new social contracts in, in the face of our new economy, right? Like these are, these are things that we know will happen. Um, but the question isn't what happens when they in- occur individually, it's what happens when they collide. And that's how a rogue wave occurs. A number of, of waves overlap simultaneously to move from something that's manageable to something that's suddenly unmanageable. And that's that's really how the future happens, right? It's we don't see kind of steady growth. We see uh, relatively stability, relative stability, uh, fractured by massive instability. And, and so, what we want to be doing is looking at. If we believe we're moving into more unstable times, how do we take advantage of those rogue waves? How do we uh, respond to them? Because those are the opportunities for growth. And and there's a good reason, right? When you think about kind of traditional strategy, uh, it it kind of assumes that the playing field will remain the same. But when you have these disruptions, that's when the opportunity happens for new entrants. That's when the opportunity happens for substitutions. And that's why you see a 50% increase in new entrance to the fortune 100 during financial disruptions. Right.
1: Right. Okay. I did not know what rogue wave meant. I'm not a surfer, so I must confess. I didn't know. don't live in California, so I wouldn't have known until I read your book. So I'm betting that there are a bunch of other people listening who also don't know what a rogue wave is. So just tell us what the metaphor means. And then I'm going to come back to your definition.
2: Yeah. In, In the deep ocean, uh, one of the, the great risks for, for sailors, for ships, uh, especially large ships, oddly, uh, is that massive waves pop up out of nowhere uh, when individually manageable waves of change collide. These things can be 120 foot tall. Uh, you know, if you're in 60 foot seas, there's th- these things can pop up and, and, and be double the size. There was one uh, a smaller wave uh, in British Columbia that appeared a couple of weeks ago, it was 60 feet tall, but it was in 20-foot seas, <laughs> right? <laughs> so these are really structural breaks. And the same sort of mathematics, you know, they, they appear, it, it appears in markets, it appears uh, throughout our lives, it, they, they, they appear in economics. And so the question that we want to be facing is not what happens when Uh, There's, there's a relatively steady, steady growth in our economies and Mm -hmm. in our lives and our businesses and and competition. But what happens when you experience those structural breaks, right? What happens Mm -hmm. during that heart attack moment? Are you, are you ready for it? Uh, And and are you ready to, to, to run the marathon when it happens? uh, while everyone else is facing a heart attack. Mm -hmm. So I think about uh, Toyota. In 2012, I, I believe it was 2012. There was a nuclear meltdown in, at the Daiichi reactor, and many of uh, the key components for producing their products, uh, they stopped producing them because yeah, you know, there was a nuclear disaster. Uh, Toyota. These these are the folks. These are the leanest, greenest, most adaptive people in manufacturing. I mean, they 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 invented you know, lean manufacturing for all intents and purposes. They said, wait a second, (laughs) like maybe we need to step back and say, what are the critical components that would disrupt our supply chain? And, And how do we increase our agility when these moments happen? And so they did two things. One, they they built six-month stockpiles of 250 components, one of which is semiconductors, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, and then the second is they really doubled down on their just-in-time manufacturing, so that they didn't have cars sitting in lots. They were they were selling to order. In 2016, when there was a natural disaster in Taiwan and there was semiconductor uh, shortages, Toyota went through it just fine. In 2020. Uh, when there were semiconductor shortages and all of a sudden uh, there weren't any minivans being sold because no one was going back to school, guess what happened? They didn't have minivans on lots and they were able to push those semiconductors into other vehicles that were being sold. Now, every car manufacturer had a really bad 2020, um, but Toyota became the largest automotive manufacturer in the world. So they flip their kayak faster, they moved through the experience, and they're coming out of this with a better capital structure and with a better market position. And they'll likely maintain it.
1: So this is a matter of Toyota having sat and said on the back of a disaster, what are the other kind of forces that could have really disrupted our ability to get the parts we need manufacture the cars that we need, and then spit them out to the market. So that entire value chain, I'm going to say, not just supply chain. And imagining what those forces were and where were we, could we be vulnerable and let's shore those up and where could we continue to be super, super lean just in time and continue to press out that way. So, okay.
2: And how will that allow us to be more aggressive when our competition is just trying to bail out of right. the wave, right. and, and I think what's really important to recognize here, you know, is is that the first thing I hear from really operational people is like, well, you can't predict every rogue wave; you don't know the future. That that's true, um, but you do know the range of possible futures, right? Based on like, let's look at the 20th century. What were the what were the range of disruptions that happened, and how did they impact finances operations? Uh, the external environment and strategy, right? What what did that mean for companies? Um, because there are really just a limited number of ways they can stress your organization. And so the question becomes, are you ready for those?
1: Can you manage those? All right, so I get the notion of a rogue wave, which is a series or a couple, three, four, five disruptive forces that collide at the same time and really... Um, create a situation none of us could have planned for. And then the question is, can we nimble? Can we, are we nimble enough? Can we move quickly enough? Can we spot it enough or at least faster than our competition to take advantage? All right. So let's go back to your 10 disruptive forces. Sure. Um, You put them in three categories, but I just love to have you run down the 10. What are the 10 you're thinking about at the moment that you think are really worth paying attention to?
2: And uh, what I think is really interesting, we'll walk through those and what I think is really interesting when you take a look at what's going on today in uh, excuse me uh what's going on today in Ukraine mm-hmm. right? It doesn't matter what the instigating event is, right you have that seed wave of disruption, and these other ten are gonna hit on top of it and so what does that mean? My point here is that most freak waves of disruption are less unpredictable than you would imagine, right? We know these things will happen. We don't know the seed event, but we know what happens afterward, right? When you think about World War I, right? We didn't know what the seed event would be, uh, but the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand uh, caused a relatively knowable cascade of things that would happen afterward. So it wasn't a question of which cigarette would would light the forest fire, right? <laughs> Was that if that a cigarette would light the forest fire and, and we misunderstood, you can know more about the future than you would imagine, by using processes, by using techniques. And that's kind of what we're getting to here. And so let's talk about what those 10 uh, undercurrents are, those smaller waves of disruption. So we see changing demographics and all of the G20 countries, I believe uh, populations are getting older. That's going to shape consumption patterns. That's going to shape taxation patterns. It's going to shape labor availability. It's already happening in, in much of the world. Uh, The data economy. So we see companies like Uber, we see companies like Airbnb, and they look like the same kind of company from the surface. But when you actually take a look at the macroeconomic impact of them, uh, what you see is that Uber has actually increased the economic productivity of cities where Airbnb has not increased building stock. They've taken low to mid-level building stock off of the market uh, and transferred value from hotels right so so they they haven't really created the same level of economic value and so when we take a look at digital transformation i think we want to be really careful to look at you know where are we creating value where are our partners creating value and where are they extracting it and and are they extracting it from us right the third is about automation so we were heard a lot a couple of years ago about how ai was going to take over the world and we were going to have self-driving trucks and we weren't going to have truck drivers and all of this stuff well the, the, the reality is uh that we look at labor automation all wrong we we many of those reports were looking at an occupational level so it it like okay so we have we've got truck drivers truck drivers drive trucks uh, so we won't need truck drivers. The reality, though, is they do so much else in their day, right? 30% of your job is in your job description. Uh, and so what, uh, what are those other tasks? And if we're going to have these labor availability issues and it's going to drive up labor costs, the question isn't so much who do we automate out of the workforce, and it's much more. How do we increase? How do we automate tasks so we free up the people we can access to create value? Um, the rise of Asia. So we're looking at two things, right? Uh, market access and resource availability. So we talk about climate change. Uh, COP twenty six was was the big kind of political news. Yeah. I mean, uh, global political news of, of last year that we're going we're going to start to figure out how to deal with this. And, and what we're really saying. Is that there's an explosion of the middle class in Asia? Eighty-six percent of U.S. level, thirty, the local equivalent of thirty-five thousand dollars a year and up, uh, income growth uh, is going to be in Asia between now and twenty thirty-five. Um, and so, and so, they're going to ha- use a lot more resources when you move out of rural poverty in the the Sahara or whatever, into, into San Francisco, your resource consumption goes up about 32 times. Now imagine a billion people doing that all at the same time. That's what's going on. We've got to figure out what we're going to do in terms of resource efficiency. It's not uh, an option. As that happens, we're going to see a lot more geopolitical competition, right? We're seeing uh potential push into Taiwan, uh, you know, from from China in the next few years, we're seeing uh, push into Ukraine uh, today, potentially by by the the Russian Federation. Uh, we're going to see more competition for water resources uh, between India, Pakistan, and and China. That's that that's you know, military theorists are terrified mm-hmm. that will spark the next world war. That's like the most likely cause. <laughs> um, uh, so, so we're going to see the rise of Asia and it's going to impact market access, right? As, as we start drawing political, geopolitical lines, and it's going to impact resource availability. And as we've been globalizing our companies, most companies haven't really thought about what happens if that globalization really goes backwards or what if those lines get redrawn? What, is, what does that mean? Um, if, if uh, you know, US companies can't access high high value, uh, growing economies like Indonesia because of, of Chinese influence. I'm not saying it will happen; it's just a thing to be considering uh, as, as the world moves forward. Cheap money. So I wrote a lot about this before uh, the the stimulus packages and the the the, the quantitative easing and uh, um of of COVID. But but this idea that that we're going to continue to print st- cheap money, I think we're going to have to do it. Um, but it's going to occur in situations where uh, different regions, the EU, the United States, Japan, China, have different inflationary structures, different economic pressures. So take think about what happens uh, if Russia invades uh, Ukraine tomorrow. All of a sudden, you have very different inflationary structure in the EU than you do in the United States. So again, you have to have very different monetary policy. Uh, in the EU than they do in the United States to deal with that. These challenges, they're going to whipsaw the global economy. For multinationals, they're going to whipsaw uh, profitability, logistics, supply chains, almost everything else. Uh, so those are the economic issues. Okay. In terms of te- just a few of those. Yeah, just a few of those. In terms of technology, so we're halfway through which is good. Uh, in terms of technology, <laughs> right? We see this explosion of emerging technologies um, and they're driving efficiency, right? What there's this thing called a solo residual, if you want to get geeky, which is how much we, how much monetary value we really create from innovation, how much, how much, how much we increase the, the, the amount earned per hour worked is, mm-hmm. is, how, is the, 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 the solo residual, and, and what we're finding with live technology is it's increasing efficiency faster than we're creating value, the monetary value. And so, and so we're emerging technologies seem to be driving efficiency faster than we monetize it, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and that's going to have massive social impact, right? What does it mean when, uh, yeah, the, the the rate of of skills, uh, the the rate, the the, the length of time for which you can monetize skills drops. What does it mean when uh, that means that that your product cycles uh, accelerate? And that brings us to this idea of the closing innovation window, uh, which is that we're gonna see faster R&D cycles. We're already seeing it uh, versus shorter product cycles. Mm -hmm. When you take a look at the explosion of IP production out of China, it's been on a pretty much of a straight line since about 2000. And we don't really notice this in, in the West. We've really said, hey, you know, China, they're they are copiers. Like, that's not true anymore. If it was true, it's not true anymore. That the level of innovation coming out of China by 2027 will be on par in terms of patent production with the United States, uh, and they still have room to run. So very, very different world, especially as those geopolitical lines get drawn. Uh uh, remixing and convergence. So we've been decreasing in the West uh, the amount of investment uh, by by government as a percentage of gross domestic product since uh, certainly the Cold War, but but really since since the the early 1980s. And that's been picked up by uh, corporations. Corporations have a different interest, right? They've got to monetize that investment in three to five years. Well, what happens, you know, when we drive R and D through corporations, it means that we get much more incremental Lego block types of innovation, right? Where, where you're trying to build more models out of the same thing as opposed to new models out of new things. We're going to need to shift that, um, uh, but that's the 15-year cycle. So that means that we're gonna actually see uh, uh changes in the way we, we no know, knowable shifts in how um the types of products, the types of innovation we see in the next couple of years. The last two, and I know that you want to get to break, uh are about uh social changes. So so digital trust, all of this stuff you know is impacting uh uh rights and responsibilities around data. The the GDPR uh, standardized, I think, 29 countries, harmonized about 29 countries' um, uh, data policies. At the same time in the US, we, I think, develop 27 or 28 different data policies in different states right We're going to see massive fraction
1: only 27
2: <laughs> and, and all of these changes are going to change the social contract right mm-hmm. we're seeing uh, really legitimate global conversations about does Chinese uh, is, is the Chinese approach better for the population than the democratic approach because of, of income disparity because mm-hmm. of prioritization on, on on the community over over the individual? Um, because of prioritization on the individual over commerce. We'll see how that spreads out. But when you take a look at the Black Lives Matter movements in the United States, the yellow jackets in France, the yellow umbrellas in Hong Kong, right? this is just the beginning of a much larger uh, decade-long conversation about you know, who benefits and who pays f- from all of this change.
1: And is that the last one? Have I gotten all 10?
2: We got it. Okay. We got it.
1: Holy mackerel, Jonathan. You know, it strikes me that none of these are new. Like, I've been hearing each of these for a while now. If I just to repeat, just to run through the quick headline stories on that. We get changing demographics and then we've got an older population that has big implications. We've got a data economy that's driving where value is created and how it's created and where it's taken from. We've got automation, which is not so much about taking jobs as is augmenting jobs. We have the rise of Asia, which is both where the consumers are going to be, where the money is and where the resources are going to be redistributed. There's the geopolitical competition that we're seeing all sorts of things in the headline at the moment. We have cheap money or different inflationary structures in various different places that'll disrupt the supply chain at a minimum and probably a dozen other things as well. And then we have um, emerging technology that's driving increase in efficiency. We have a closing innovation window, which means R&D is going to go super fast and products are going to spin out they don't have a shorter life cycle is the way I want to say it. And we have what you call remix and convergence, which is really our investments, particularly in the West, have been driven through corporations and they're going to have to go back to sort of broader innovation. So they're not just tied to the same kind of things that corporations are care about. And we have the whole digital trust issue. And which side of the equation do you want to fall on that? Who benefits and who pays?
2: I, I think that's a great summary. And my, my okay. addition to that, and I think you made a good point, we hear these headlines all the time. My question is, are you considering the entire newspaper? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Are, are you doing this, this about what, what it means when these collide? Because I think, like you said, we both agree they're going to collide.
1: <laughs> well, they are colliding. I think you can see that. I, a, I think an awful lot of people don't spend, you hear this, you see this and you go, oh my gosh, that's terrible. And then you go back to your day job. You right. go back to your yearly planning, you go back to your same product, you go back to the same product cycle, you do all the things that you've always done, knowing that it's coming someday, but not actually thinking about what to do about it. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting, though, is you said, it's not the 10, we all knew the 10, or the 10 that become 12 or 15, either whatever the number is, it's the collision of these, mm-hmm. because that's what creates the massive disruption. All right, so Jonathan, speculate for me a moment. How could two, three of these collide in an unusual way? Just spin out what that might look like.
2: Sure. I, I, I get a little, just I'm glad to do it. I get a little bit dubious when I talk about these generally because the the, the future is specific, right? Yeah. It's, it's for a current component of a company, uh, on a current, on, in, on, on a very specific timeline and a specific geography. Okay. Fair enough. So, so these are what you know,
1: the, I'm looking for is an illustration yeah, of the collision yeah, yeah, yeah. is what I'm really looking for.
2: So, so what, what we're looking at, uh, you know, like I said, Russia's Russia's the, the news headline of the week. Um, you know, what does it mean for, um, you know, for an automobile manufacturer in Germany, for this to happen, right? Uh, well, they have changing demographics, right? They they already have a structural labor shortage in in Germany. Uh, they they you know may find that they need to choose between uh, uh, NATO and U.S. driven uh, trade alliances uh versus um versus the current shift toward toward trade in China uh because of of uh the, the entente between Russia right. and China that, that appears to be shaping up. That could be a massive shift. Um uh in terms of inflationary pressure. You know, what does that mean to not have access to energy or or unreliable access to energy? And what does it mean for the cost of of gas to go up significantly in Europe for for, for automobile sales? Uh, At the same time, we're seeing the closing innovation window. Chinese manufacturers are getting better at manufacturing automobiles, uh, uh, and they're doing it faster. And so it may be that, that that China, because it's moving toward a more internal, producing uh, automobiles for its internal market, it may be able to continue uh, moving forward faster because it has more reliable access to energy from Russia and f- through Pakistan and India uh, than, than than Germany does. Uh, I'm just throwing this out. I, I don't know enough. On a deep analysis of this, right? And and that's going to cause, all of this is going to cause, you know, real conversations around social contracts. In Germany, uh, the trade unions have a seat on the board of the companies. And so there's going to be a real discussion around, you know, who benefits and who pays uh, if we have a geopolitical uh, conflict and and the the workforce um, takes the downside. It's a very different outcome. It's a very different set of conversations than uh, in the United States, where we have a lot more energy independence today. But trust me, this is going to knock things up on the.
1: That's all right. The U.S. uh, could have its its own own
2: gas, especially in California, where I live, and it's already pushing up on $6 U.S. a gallon.
1: Yeah. There's plenty of uh, ways in which these forces collide in the U.S. Uh, So this wasn't meant to be advice for the auto industry or for the German economy or for any combination of that. It was just an illustration of take one industry in one location and how a precipitating event, a seed event, as you have described, could collide with all these waves. And you start to see um, more than a tsunami, a rogue wave kind of effect that could dramatically change. An industry and with that a country's economy
2: absolutely uh, and 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 something like this will happen right I'm not saying that that will happen, but I'm saying something like this will happen and it will happen in this decade, right It will happen within your your strategic likely it is more likely than not to happen within your strategic planning window if you're a large company.
1: All right. Now that we've got everybody in an absolute state of panic, it's a perfect place to take a break. So with me today is Jonathan Brill. The book that we're talking about is Rogue Waves. Those things where the waves, the undercurrents that are kind of known collide unexpectedly, unpredictably, and create a massive wave, a rogue wave. The question is, what are all those forces? How do they impact you? Now, the good news is when we come back from break, we're going to talk about How do you recognize them and what do you do about it? And we'll be right back.
0: If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it.
1: This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.OutOfTheComfortZone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive, all on OutOfTheComfortZone.com. We hope you'll join us.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: With me today is Jonathan Brill. The book we're talking about is Rogue Waves. Those notions of forces and trends that are happening that you're aware of in the world and when they collide, multiples of them come together, they create a massive event that can create opportunity if you're prepared for it and they can sink you if you're unprepared for it. So the intent isn't to scare you to death as so much as it is to get you to think, to be aware, and then to start adopting some practices inside your company that are going to get you more equipped to take advantage of the opportunities that are coming along. All right. So Jonathan, here's the perfect tee up. We've got these <laughs> trends. We see them. So now what am I supposed to be doing if I'm a leader inside an organization?
2: So, so what I didn't realize when I wrote the book was... I think it's fun and I professionally come up with ideas for disaster movies. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize this wasn't a hobby most people had. Um, uh, so so the, the good news is actually in times of disruption, that is the time to take ground. That is the time for the greatest opportunity. And so what we really want to be looking at is do we have the right skill sets on our teams to better see the future than our competition and to plan for it? And uh, when I think about that, I think about uh, something really geeky, uh, the field of epistemology, which is in philosophy, there's a little geeky, super geeky corner uh, where we study uh, how we know what we know. You know, that's that's called epistemology and and there are really only four ways that we know new things. There's, there's thinking like a lawyer right deductive thinking. there's thinking like a scientist uh, you know asking, oh it's called inductive thinking what, what what is the most likely thing given the information we know right now? Mm-hmm. The third is thinking like an economist. It's called Bayesian reasoning and, and saying, okay, well, how do, we, how do we build a model of what's going on uh, around us and how would the inputs or the outputs change you know, if, if something went wanky in the middle? And then the last is uh, what's called abductive thinking or thinking like an artist, right? So think about a science fiction author and what do they really do? They say, what would the world look like if something that we know to be true changed? Right, so what would happen if gravity didn't exist? How would how would it like be like to be human? Like seen lots of movies about that, uh, or what would happen if something new um, came to light? What would happen if a meteor hit the Earth? How how would how would that impact? Uh, like <laughs> how would that impact um, uh, our lives? So so. If you have those four competencies within your organization, you can really start to uh, look at the future in a full-spectrum way. And there are, there are, within the book, we talk about kind of the process to do that. So, how do you reality test? If you want to forecast the future, you start from the wrong baseline, it turns out that you end up with the wrong future. Uh, how do you observe the range of uh, how do you observe the system? How do, you, how do you start to look at that range of possibility? Because there's an envelope of possibility, right? It's not like gravity won't exist or gravity will exist. Like, there's a range. Um, and then how do you generate that range of possible futures? How do you make sure that you're looking at the future from A to Z, like we were talking about earlier? And then we get into more traditional kind of project management types of things. How do you uncouple threats from opportunities? Where are the key choice points? And how do you make sure that they're increasing uh, your optionality and your potential? And then how do you experiment more effectively? So when you think about a company like General Motors, that spent a lot of money on innovation, but it's making a better car, better car, better car, better car, better car. Now they've made an electric vehicle that goes 150,000 miles without a tune-up, and then it had battery issues and things were catching fire or whatever. It's going to be really hard for them to figure out how they pivot uh, away, from, away from this issue. What they should have been doing is thinking much more like a pharmaceutical company that, that has a whole portfolio of molecules that they're looking at. And And they're they're looking at their risk profile so that no matter which ones win or which ones lose, they're always getting the right payouts on the right timeline. So the question is, you know how do you think about your innovation like an investor? right? How do you think as, as a portfolio as opposed to making individual bets?
1: Right. Okay. So reality testing, mm-hmm. observing the system, creating generating a range of futures uncoupling threats and opportunities in experiment in different ways, which is largely to think about experimentation. Innovation is a portfolio of plays of bets, all conveniently adding up to Rogue, I think, R-O-G-U-E. How convenient it's, is that? It's
2: like I'm a consultant or
1: something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you have one of the things I like about the book is that you give a number of frameworks that people can use for each of those five. So pick a couple that are your favorite. Walk us through how the how you use them.
2: Yeah. Uh, a couple of frameworks for for each of the five. So we've got a few minutes here. Um, I, or a I,
1: couple altogether. I'm not expecting you to hit all five because <laughs> that's a long task.
2: <laughs> so, um I, th- I think one that's really helpful is is the what I call the real method. So when you reality test, you know you, you want to figure out what's your reconnaissance method, right? How are we going to look at the universe of all of the things we don't know and and what's the first experiment that could cut that the most? What's the second one? What's the third one? The second one is how do you collect evidence? right? What we discover in in legal cases all the time is that the way you collect evidence uh, can skew. The case and so are you collecting evidence properly? And then how are you doing analysis? So one of the big issues that we see when we look at the future, when we look at what could be happening in a new situation, is that we we don't look at, you know, all of the alternatives. We don't look at the range of possibilities. So when you take a look at uh you know the US invasion of Iraq, you know, it was identified that all of the things that um went wrong, could go wrong, we just decided not to plan for it right we said that's not that 's not an alternative that we 're going to consider and then what 's the likely reality once again in Iraq, um, the outcome was the likely reality. <laughs> It just wasn't the one we wanted, right? Because we'd, we'd misclassified the range of alternatives. So so that's the real method, right? How, how, what's your, what's your reconnaissance? How are you going to do reconnaissance? How are you going to collect evidence? How are you going to do your analysis? And what's the most likely outcome? And you want to look at a range and you want to track that likelihood over time. Make sure that that uh, your assessments uh, of your baseline continue to be true.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, So can you give me an example for how, so philosophically, that all sounds lovely. Uh, You know, I'm saying what experiment is going to cut this information and our unknowns in half. I'm looking at, did we collect the evidence in a way that doesn't contaminate the evidence? And have we missed the left evidence on the field that we should have been paying attention to? And I get that the questions that you ask determine the numbers that you get out and it's so easy to ask the wrong questions and do the wrong analysis as a result. And I also get the, you know, probability estimates in favor of what I want it to be as opposed to in favor of what it actually is and tracking that every time. Mm-hmm. But can you give me an example of this these playing out?
2: An example of, of doing of the real method. Mm-hmm doing a, a process like that. So, yeah, uh, when I was looking at the likelihood of a zoonotic respiratory pandemic in 2018 and 2019, <laughs> very specifically, um, you know, what I looked at was uh, uh, Marsh McLennan and, and yeah, the WEF and, and, and many of the, the companies, organizations that do risk analysis uh, for, for companies, they were miscalculating the likelihood of this happening, uh, and the impact, uh, when you take a look at eight of the 10 largest companies in the world, uh, publicly held companies rather in the United States, um, they failed to identify pandemics as a risk. CVS Health, uh, did because, you know, Aetna is, uh, they, that they, they're they're major insurer, uh, and and Apple said, hey, maybe it'll goof up our our supply chains and our manufacturing a little bit because you know bird flu did that. Um, what I looked at was okay. So between 1995 and 2019, we'd seen 400 million people move into cities in China. The cities had been expanding in into the the wilderness, pushing. The, 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 the interface between humans and wildlife uh, through the roof. Uh, we saw, so, so the likelihood of a spark was increasing. And that wasn't just China, that was happening worldwide, right? The mm-hmm. likelihood of a spark. Uh, the second thing was a development of 16 high-speed rail lines between the major uh, metropolitan areas in China. So when that spark lit, the likelihood of a spread had gone through the roof. Still containable. Right. But the thing that really made the world different from the last two respiratory outbreaks to this one is between 2012 and 2019, we saw a 10 times increase in tourist travel out of China. So when this thing hit. Right. It was no longer containable. Right. We got much better at containing pandemics, but the situation had made it uncontainable. And so while much of the world was saying this is like a 1 in 100 chance, Mm -hmm. I was looking at this and saying, I think this is a 1 in 12 to 1 in 20 chance that this next outbreak um, uh, goes wild. Well, that radically changes your calculations, right, as a global Mm -hmm. company. Uh, mm-hmm. And and one of the things HP did was we invested in smart diagnostics technologies that would, you know, in de- because demographics were good, it would be effective. Um, but if there was something like a pandemic, the interest in microfluidics and smart smart diagnostic healthcare diagnostics uh, would go through the roof. And and so this has been a really good thing uh, for HP. Right. That we were looking a little bit deeper at what is reality versus what has it always right. been. Right
1: to be. And looking at a broader range of evidence. So Absolutely. you're pulling together a whole bunch of demographic trends like rail lines and shift out closer to the jungle and more increased travel and a whole bunch of things. So there's different evidence and that's going to drive a different set of questions and that's going to give a different set of reality checks. All right, I get that. Give me so that's the real method. I like that one. Give me an easier to do if you've got a inquisitive challenging mind around you, give me one of your other favorite methods.
2: So, so there's a, there's a related method for innovation that, that I find works really well. And I do it with, with my buddy, Ted Selker, who's one of the most prolific inventors in the United States. We've worked together for 20 years. He was my boss at, uh, when I was a consultant to MIT, um, as what we call the chess tournament. And it overcomes a lot of the cognitive biases that humans have when they're trying to innovate. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we take four ideas you know, and think of them as different chess, chess boards. Mm-hmm. And we spend 15 minutes on, on one, then 15 minutes on the next, so on and so forth. And one of us being the advocate for an idea, one of the, us you know, playing the opposite side. And then we go to the next one and we go to the next one and go to the next one. And then we flip the chessboards. So if I if I was, you know, the 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 um yeah. black, what you know, I'm now white. Uh, and so what happens here is because we've got four of them, you can't quite remember all of the details, right? So you don't have the recency bias, you don't have a lot of that stuff. And because I'm gonna have to argue the opposite side in like a minute, the emotional gate engagement in the argument decreases. And so simply taking a model like this and it doesn't have to be 15 minutes you can do it in, in shorter time frames too uh, it allows you to to really think through the problem on a larger scale when an idea doesn't uh, fails you know we add a new one to the chessboard so you're always dealing with slightly more information sm- slightly more ways of looking at the problem than you can keep fully in your head and so you you overcome a lot of the bias issues
1: all right. Now, presumably that requires people to be somewhat educated on some of the major forces, the events happening in the world, mm-hmm. so that I can't just show up having not read anything or thought about anything and hope I know enough.
2: Well, I, I find this is, has this is worked for us dealing with… You know, in, innovating products in refrigeration and furniture and, and automotive. Um, it's worked in a whole range of fields. It also works for scenario planning and scenario analysis, like we were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've done we've experimented with, uh, with my colleague, Liam Fahey, with a number of scenarios where you just kind of create the scenario and then you force people to get engaged in what it might mean and where to go and debate and back and forth. And that's also another version of this uh, chess tournament. But I like the idea that you flip the board and you can't continue to argue the same case. You don't get wedded to an argument or you don't have to prove you are right in any capacity. It's just the experimentation with the idea that opens up, I think, different thinking, different possibilities. All right, Jonathan, this is terribly unfair. You've got two minutes. Okay, so two and a half minutes. All of this says, all right, so I identify an opportunity or identify a real threat. Ultimately, I've got to get an organization to change its culture.
2: Hmm. How? <laughs> there's, there's a wonderful section of the book on exactly that topic.
1: Exactly. So,
2: buy the book. So buy the, book. Um, <laughs> the, the, the answer is... A little more complex than that, but that there are there are simple ways that you can improve the quality of future focus in the company right do your hard incentives and soft incentives align with the objectives that you have uh, are you teaching people to give orders give direction in ways that allow people below them to act very specifically within risk bands so they're not taking too much or too little risk um, but uh, toward Toward an objective and with an understanding of the, the the outcome and the situation. In the U.S. as we've had less people leaving the military for private uh, business over the last forty years, that basic training hasn't occurred. You want to put that what what they call an op board or, or br- military briefing type of thinking into your organization, not because you need to be the military, but because you know they really are the best at helping people deal with radical uncertainty in a VUCA world.
1: Okay. Just to name a few, and I can testify that there are several other sections in there that are also worth paying attention to. Okay. Jonathan, I can't resist asking you my favorite closing question, which is what takes you out of your comfort zone?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I've been killed by the ocean, uh, almost killed by the ocean three times. And... Uh, being in the ocean scares the pants off of me.
1: Interesting. And do you still do it?
2: Uh I like being on top of a very large boat.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not underneath it, hopefully not trapped in between it and hopefully the boat's right, right size as opposed to capsized.
2: But I still I still love the ocean, but I I have a deep respect.
1: Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. All right, Jonathan, fascinating conversation today, as I knew it would be. If I think back on this one, I think your starting point on the book is the most interesting insight of all. Um, The techniques are also really insightful, but it's this notion of recognizing, yes, we hear headline, 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 but we never join the dots and say, what if three or four of those headlines collided all simultaneously? What would that mean? and that's the concept of the rogue wave. They collide, didn't see them colliding, and wow, what an impact it has. And I also love the techniques that you described. There are plenty more in the book. Trust me, I think about 15 of them if I counted all the way through correctly. Um, So Jonathan, thank you for being a guest today.
2: Thank you for having me, Wanda. Pleasure to be here.
1: It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure also to continue the conversation. My guest, Jonathan Brill, the book is Rogue Waves. Um, You can learn more about Jonathan at his website, jonathanbrill.com. I got that correct. Yes, Jonathan. Excellent. And if you liked our show today, please like us on your favorite podcast server. If you want to know more about how to apply this, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com and definitely join us next week for another episode
0: in getting out of your comfort zone.